Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the City Baptist Church Podcast. We would love to have you join us for a service in person. You can find all the information you need on our website at citybaptist.church. 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. We're going to begin a brand new verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter uh, today. And I'm sure some of you might be wondering, Pastor, why are we studying 1 Peter right now? Why are we studying this book? Why uh, at this place? Well, it's a book that I've certainly been uh, studying for a few months now, been pondering, been praying about, uh, something I've been wanting to get, go through together. Uh, but besides all of that, we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? And it's profitable in every season of life, for every, uh, in all situations. And the book of 1 Peter is a unique book, and I believe it's unique in several ways that I feel will be challenging, I feel will be helpful to us as a church family, as we are still in the process of transition ourselves, moving into this building, getting used to how things are. And at the same time, we know that whenever God does something, whenever there's good things that are happening, there's challenges that come along the way. And so this book really is a book about standing strong. It's a book about uh, continuing on uh, for the gospel, no matter the circumstance. And today, what we're going to do as we get into the series is I'm going to do uh, just sort of a bit of an overview with you today. So we're going to do an overview of the book of 1 Peter. I'm going to give you some thoughts. I'm going to try to be pretty clear. We're going to get a lot of information in. And so I hope you've got maybe a note sheet there. Uh, If you need a pen, there's pens out back. It's okay if you want to go up and get a pen. Um, But we're going to cover a lot of ground as I give you an overview of what we're going to be studying over these next few months together. And it's a very unique book. And so that's the word that I chose to use for all of our points is the word unique as we talk about First Peter and sort of set the stage, set the table. If you want to use that, uh, if you prefer food over a concert, set the table uh, for what we're going to be talking about over these next few months together. And so number one, we're just going to get right into the book of First Peter. The book of First Peter is unique in its authorship. Now, one of the things that we know about the New Testament is that the majority of it was written by a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. In fact, 28% of the New Testament was written about him. And then we also know that he is featured in a great deal of the New Testament as well. But if we were to take a look at the apostles and if we were to take a look at the impact that they had, let's just pretend today that we're going to have a sports center top 10 impact apostles today. Sound good? Cue the music. No, okay. But imagine that we were going to do that. You know, imagine we were going to sit down and, and I want you to write your top 10 list of impact, impactful apostles, you know, not all 12, not anybody else, just those. Let's, let's t- come up with our top 10. I think all of us would say, number one, the Apostle Paul, right? Number one, definitely. But I would hazard a guess or I would myself pick Peter at number two. I think outside of the Apostle Paul and all that he did, Peter was somebody who made a huge impact for the gospel. Now, Peter, of course, was the former fisherman. He was a businessman, and he was somebody who was converted to faith in Jesus Christ by the witness of his own brother, Andrew. In John chapter number one and verse uh, number 40 through 41, it gives us that background story where it says that one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first, notice this, findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Now I'm thankful that Andrew was somebody who wanted to reach out to his family first of all. So we see that. So Andrew went to Peter and he said, hey, listen, we found the Messiah. And that moment was a game changer 
for Peter. And from that place of faith right there, he became one of the fiercest supporters of the, and and of course, uh, fiercest supporters of Jesus Christ, but also he became a part of the inner circle along with James and John. And he was, I mean, he was there with Christ. He was there with him on this ministry. And he, I mean, did an amazing job supporting and, and encouraging the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there was this one defining moment in Peter's life. And if you've studied the Bible at all, you know about this, when Peter himself denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. You remember that story? All of us, of course, have been confronted with that truth in our own hearts of denying the Lord, meaning he pretended as if he wasn't related to Christ or he wasn't connected to him at all. And to add to it, it was on the night of his crucifixion. When Jesus needed his supporters the most, when he needed somebody to stand by him, Peter denied him and walked away from him. Now, that was a defining moment of betrayal for Peter. And as Luke 22 tells us, it says that he ran out of the place when it was revealed to him in his heart and Jesus looked at him that he ran out and he wept bitterly over his betrayal. And we know that story very well. And when you think about Peter, that's maybe one of the defining moments. But here's the great thing about the Lord and here's the great thing about our faith is that even though there was this great moment of betrayal, it was not the end of Peter's story. His story of betrayal was gloriously redeemed as he repented of his sin, as he was restored to the now resurrected Savior. And Peter was given a new chance, a new calling. And following the events of the day of Pentecost, Peter became a major force for the gospel spread around the world again. And his defining characteristic, I think we could identify it, as being someone who had a willing boldness to stand up for Christ even when other people would cower in fear. In Acts chapter 5, we're given just one instance of that when there was a lot of good things happening there in Jerusalem. Of course, the religious elite uh, were not excited about what was going on, and so they confronted him and they came to him and they said, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in in this name? They wouldn't even say the name of Jesus. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But look how Peter responded. I mean, he is being confronted. He is facing imprisonment. He's facing attack. But look, look at how he responded in verse 29 when he says, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. I think you could say at this point that Peter had learned his lesson. (laughs) When he was challenged with whether or not he was a follower of Jesus Christ, he boldly proclaimed and he stood for what was right. And from that point, he became a tremendous example, a founder of the church, a strong leader for the gospel, someone who broke barriers, racial barriers, cultural barriers for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he did that all the way up until his martyrdom in AD 68, where history and and really uh, uh, history teaches us that he was crucified, martyred, crucified, upside down, stating that he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when they went to crucify him, he requested, in fact, uh, history teaches us that he begged them to not, uh, not crucify him in that way. So Peter was an impactful character, certainly, but for all of his impact for the gospel, we only have these short two letters, First and Second Peter, that are his enduring legacy in scripture. Really a small percentage of the New Testament, and that's why today I say to you, it's a unique book. It is unique in its authorship because it's only a small uh, bit of this man who did so much for the gospel, yet we only have this small record of what he did. And so for us, because it's unique, it's something that we can pay close attention to. But secondly, we see that this book is unique in its timing. It's unique in its authorship, but it is unique in its timing as well. 
In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 12, it says, By Silvanius, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, salute you, and so doth Marcus, my son. So Peter's epistle, this letter, was dictated to this guy named Silvanius. Now, Silvanius is also known in Scripture as Silas. Now, Silas, as soon as we say that name, we immediately begin to think about him. Okay, he was the one who was with Paul on his second missionary journey. Silas was the one who prayed and sang in the prison. And you remember they were in prison there in Philippi, and they sang together. They experienced God's rescue by an earthquake. And here we see him, uh, Peter, talking that he uh, dictated, essentially, in Sylvanius. Silas was the one who wrote it down and the one who was delivering it. But then Paul or Peter also states that it was written in Babylon. Did you see that? He says, the church that is at Babylon elected together saluteth you. Now, now that's a puzzler, honestly. Historically, it's a bit of a puzzler, because what is he talking about here? Because uh, historically there, at that time, there were three different Babylons, I told you there's a lot of information today, okay? So you're going to leave here learning a lot. There's three different Babylons. We're trying to figure out where he's writing from. Now, there, of course, was the historical Babylon in Mesopotamia, and we're all familiar with that. Uh, that was the, probably the greatest one, perhaps. But what we do know is that the church at Babylon was actually scattered and under severe persecution in AD 41 by Caligula. And in fact, as far as we know, it was almost completely dispersed at that point. So it couldn't necessarily be that because there was no actual church there. Uh, Secondly, though, we know that there was a Babylon of Egypt. Now, this is just a smaller city, Babylon of Egypt, and there's no record of Peter ever being there. So we don't believe that that was that either. But then we have the symbolic Babylon, which was Rome. Now, throughout history, what we know is that the name Babylon has stood for evil. We see that in Revelation, it's referenced. And so when Rome began its harassment and its persecution of Christians, some around AD 54, they believe, is when it really began with the uh, entering in of Nero as emperor, Christians locally began to refer to Rome as Babylon. They kind of, it was like a pet name for Rome, you know? They just called it Babylon. It was this place of persecution. As well, we know Peter was martyred in Rome, right? So he's martyred in Rome. We know that uh, they often referred to it as Rome. And so we do believe that he more than likely was in Rome around this time, actual Rome, writing this around AD 63 to AD 64. And that is why the timing is so unique. Remember I said it's unique timing. The reason the timing is unique is that Peter is writing this just before persecution went from level one to level 1,000. I don't know how else to put it. It just went on a steep incline straight up. See, it was in AD 64 that something interesting happened in Rome. And you guys know Rome was an amazing place. Rome in this time was, I mean, uh, pretty much the, it was the capital, certainly, uh, of the vast and the mighty Roman Empire. It stretched from Britain all the way uh, down into the Middle East. And it was, Rome, of course, was the diplomatic. It was the trade center of the world. And it was the largest city. And at first, Christianity was tolerated there. Christianity was, was tolerated in Rome. They considered it a sect of Judaism. And so they said, well, we've taken over uh, Israel. And so, of course, all right, this is sort of comes along with it. And so they had no problem uh, with it, definitely. However, it was in the last few years of Emperor Nero's reign. Like I said, he reigned from AD 54 until his death in 68. But at that time, especially in the later years, and I mentioned AD 64 as a key phrase or a key time, 
The reason I mention it is because that is when Rome, a large part of Rome was destroyed by fire. You know the whole story. You know, Nero played his violin while Rome burned. Many suspect that he set the fire himself, which again speaks to his mental health and well-being at that time. But he took advantage of the situation. And what did he do? He started accusing the Christians as being the source of this. And so at A.D. 64, things went to a whole nother level. Now, some of you look confused. You're like, what is that noise that I'm hearing? So there's a church downstairs having church right now, and apparently they're worshiping right now. So that's great. I'm glad. It sounds like they're having a good time. All right. There you go. Can you hear me still? <laughs> some of your faces are like, you're like looking. It's like, is pastor's phone on? Like, what's going on here? Hey, here's the good thing. We're working on getting it soundproof down there, so we shouldn't have that issue anymore. So anyway, I'm thankful they have a place to worship, and we're glad to, uh, to help, help make that happen for them. But we can, now we can all focus. We know what's going on. Got it? All right, cool. Okay, what was I saying? AD 64. So uh, he began to publicly accuse Christians. Uh, he began to attack them. Of course, famously, we know uh, what happened there in the Colosseum as they would throw Christians to wild dogs, to starved lions for sport. Uh, he's also well known to take Christians that they were going to kill anyway, cover them, pour tar over them, put them up in his buildings and in his uh, courtyards, set them on fire to light during his parties and watch these people and these corpses burn. I mean, he was a messed up guy. But you got to understand that during these persecutions, Christians were forced to choose between the emperor and Christ. Who is it that you worship? Who is it that you will follow? And that is why so many died for their faith during this time is because they said, no, I serve Christ. I do not serve Nero. Both Peter and Paul are believed to have been victims of his reign of terror. And so you got to imagine Peter is there in Rome. It's AD 63. Things are starting to ramp up. He's recognizing what is to come. Things don't just happen overnight. He's seeing things. And so he would have seen the persecution coming. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he warns believers in this letter. He warns them, and we're going to cover this in our study. He talks about trials that will come. He talks about how there were beatings for doing the right thing. He talks about how there was suffering for doing what is right, how they could participate with Christ in his suffering and how they will suffer according to the will of God. Peter could see what was coming. He knew what was ahead. He was in the city. He saw the signs of the times, and he wrote this letter at the right time with the right warning, and I'll tell you this, he also wrote it with the right encouragement. There is so much encouragement in this letter, and aren't you glad that God always brings encouragement right when you need it? Man, I've experienced that this week. When I needed encouragement, I got encouragement. And it was kind of random, but man, it was encouragement. And I'm so thankful for it because God knows what we're going through. He knows what we're walking through. And so Peter sees all of this is happening. And so he encourages them to stand strong, to, to continue on for the Lord. And he gives them some great encouragement. And he makes sure to encourage them. And we're going to talk about all of those of how he encourages them to live in days of persecution and adversity. And I'll tell you what, we need to know that today, how we can live and stand for the Lord in days of persecution and adversity. And so it's unique in its timing, and it's, very, it's, a, it's a great timed uh, book, but also it is unique in its recipients, number three. It is a unique book in its recipients. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll finally get there. 1 Peter chapter 1. You ready? You're like, is he going to read any verses? Yes. Verse number 1 today. Uh, let's get in there real quickly. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God through, the, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now, the recipients that he is writing here to, and this is what we want to get, he is writing to 
saved believers. And not just any saved believers, but saved believers uh, that were Jewish, but also Gentile believers as well. And these were believers who had been scattered among the Roman provinces. Here, he mentioned Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, of course, is a larger province, and Bithynia. Now, interestingly enough, three of these provinces that he mentioned here had people who were actually at the day of Pentecost. So if you remember, there was Jews in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, and as Peter preached to them, remember, it talked about all the different people from different regions, and so three of the regions that he mentioned here, and of course, these are many of the, uh, of the provinces that, that Rome had at the time, but three of them, interestingly enough, were there, people from there, Jews were there from these different provinces some 30 years previous to that. That's encouraging to me, because that means that there are people still serving the Lord 30 years later. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for people in my life that are serving the Lord today that served the Lord 30 years ago. Uh, even, by the way, I can remember 30 years ago. Hard to believe I'm that old. But yeah, I can remember China was telling me how she knew, she now is like, I'm 10 years older than other people. Yeah, and that's what happens, right? But I'm thankful. Okay, some of you are like, I can remember 50 years ago, you know, or more. Um, but I'm thankful for people who serve God for extended periods of time. I mean, that's a real blessing. That should be a heart for all of us, right? We should all desire to serve the Lord uh, for the entirety of our life. And so we see this statement of faithfulness. Now, we know that there were many Jews that were scattered all over because of persecution in Jerusalem. I want to remind you about Acts 8, chapter 3. This is following the death of Stephen, that first martyr that's recorded for us in Scripture, where it says, as for Paul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word of God. And so Peter, of course, is dealing with the Jewish believers that have been scattered. He's also writing to, of course, not just Jewish believers, but Gentile believers as well. Now, if you can remember back to our study in the book of Acts and also in the book of Revelation, we know that the Gentile believers also suffered great persecution. If you were to change and, and to become, let's say, just a, a, go from being a pagan a citizen of Rome and you were to then become a follower of Jesus Christ, I mean, it had some impact. And so there was persecution. People lost their jobs. They lost their homes. Uh, they had to flee for their lives. There was a struggle to find employment, a struggle to live freely in society. And Peter is writing to all of those people, but I want you to know something else as well, and that is this. Peter is not just writing to the Jews of the dispersion. He's not just writing to the Gentiles, uh, believers that have come, but he is actually writing to all Christians as well. And the reason that we know that is because the theme that Paul uses throughout the book, this theme of pilgrim and strangers, that's the title of our series, Pilgrims and Strangers, uh, is a theme that very specifically has been used throughout the Word of God to refer to those who follow after Jesus Christ. Here's the thing, church, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, God transfers your citizenship from a citizen of the world and a citizen of Satan, and he transfers your citizenship to a citizen of heaven, to a citizen of God. And there is a transformation that takes place. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, For our conversation is in heaven, meaning our lifestyle, the, what we're pursuing is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we live on this earth as believers. Yes, we are here, but we are not of this world. Our citizenship is somewhere else. We look forward to a better place. The world becomes a foreign country to us, and the reason is is because heaven is, not, uh, heaven is our final home. This earth is not our real and final home. We are only here temporarily. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, you can say amen to that. I think that's really good. Hebrews chapter 11, that's something we should be excited about, seriously. The fact that this is not, I often tell people, this world is as bad as it's going to get for us. It's as bad as it's going to get for us. For those who don't know Christ, this is as good as it's going to get for them. 
And for Christians, though, this is as bad as it's going to be. Now, Hebrews 11 is a place we often call the hall of faith. It lists all of these people that followed God by faith, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and others, and talks about these people that lived great lives of faith. And we look to them, and we've studied them before. But they also made this same connection that this world is not our home. I just want to read you a few verses from that. Hebrews 11, 13 says, These all died in faith after talking about several of them, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, that's of the Messiah, and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were, say it with me, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Verse 15, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned, but now they desire a better country. That is an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. This world is not my home, as the old song goes. I'm just a passing through. It's not our home. And as Christians, we should embrace that and enjoy that. And so when Peter is writing to strangers and pilgrims, he's talking to all of us. I think the best way to understand it is in the context of travel. Many of you traveled, you're probably way more traveled than I have been able to travel, blessed to travel all over the world, different places. And I love to do that. I love to go to different places. And Jeanette and I, man, six years ago, got to go to uh, Rome and Germany for our 10th wedding anniversary. And so we went for 10 days. And uh, there were terrible 10 days for those watching our kids. But for us, it was great. We enjoyed it being away. And I'm just joking. They were fine. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't even remember how many kids, how many kids did we have back then. I guess only the three. Yeah, the three boys. And um, that's right. <laughs> Max remembers that trip. And, uh, and we enjoyed it. We had such a great time. We got to see so many cool things and, and just experience experienced so many wonderful things. But there was a point for me that I longed for home. Now, I was having a great time. I was enjoying as much gelato as I could get, you know. I was enjoying uh, all of these <laughs> great things as we traveled and experienced and met a lot of really great people. But I always knew that it was temporary, right? I don't know anyone who's ever been able to take a permanent vacation. <laughs> That's called moving somewhere else is what it is. Uh, but a permanent vacation, and none of us have. So when we go and we travel, we always recognize at some point it's going to come to an end. At some point, I'm going to return home to the greatest city on earth, Vancouver, B.C. Now, I love living here, of course. But we know that it's going to come to an end. And that's how it is in just our life. We are here, but for a time. When God wills and in his timing, we are going to leave this earth and we are going to be at our final eternal home, which is in heaven. We are just strangers and pilgrims in this earth. And it's significant because it means a couple of things. Here's what it means. It means that where we live on this earth doesn't matter all that much. It doesn't matter all that much. Uh, because honestly, whether persecution comes, and it may be that someday some of us are forced to leave our homes or leave a city because of persecution. We don't know what is ahead. We may be poor. <laughs> we may be suffering. We may go through great hardship in this life. But it doesn't really matter all of that because it is just for a short time. We are strangers and we are pilgrims and we will be called home to our permanent home where forever and ever there will be no hunger or poverty or suffering or struggling at all. We will be in heaven. And so because we're strangers and pilgrims, we know that. It, as well, it means that we should keep our eyes and our minds focused on heavenly things. That's very clear in Scripture. We should focus on the fact that heaven is our permanent home. That can really change your perspective on life. It, it helps us, and we should keep our eyes and mind focused on just how short life is. It is a vapor that passes very quickly. 
As well, we can be focused on how uncertain, how insecure, and how short-term all things on this earth really are. Sometimes we take the suffering and the difficulty and the tragedy of this earth, and we make it this just overwhelming, incredible thing, and, and it seems to take over every aspect of our life. But the fact is, it's just for a time. It's just for a time. Those of you that suffer uh, with chronic illnesses, those of you that suffer with difficult family relationships, those of you that suffer with uh, all sorts of different things that you're going through, listen, it is just for a time. We do have something to look forward to. When you're struggling, you seem like you never can get ahead. When you're struggling and you're just like, "I I don't understand why this is all happening. Listen, we can keep our eyes on heavenly things because we are just strangers and pilgrims. This world is not our final place. Now, I know for some of you right now, you're saying, well, how can I do that, Pastor Paul? Maybe you are the kind of person, like myself, that struggles sometimes with looking at life in a heavenly way. Maybe I'm the only one, I think we all can agree that we do struggle with that. We become so focused on the temporary. And and honestly, sometimes this world, this life becomes everything to us. It becomes more important than anything else, including your spirituality, including your walk with God. And so it overwhelms us and it overcomes. And so we say, well, how do we get to this point? How do, we, how do we get to this point where we can live in that way? Well, the answer is found back in verse number two as Peter gives us some perspective as to who we are. Now look at verse number two with me. So there in verse one he says, to the strangers scattered about, and then verse two, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Okay, Peter here is going to now teach us what our position is in Christ. If you don't get anything else today, understand this, okay? This is really, really important here. We can live as heavenly-minded people. We can live as those who look beyond the pain and the suffering of this world because we are the elect. We are the chosen people of God. Now, as soon as you heard the term election and you talk about the word chosen, of course, uh, that brings up some thought processes around certain theological persuasions. And we're not going to dig into it too deep today. But I want to tell you this. These are biblical terms that we can embrace and we can understand. These are things that the scripture lays out for us, and this verse really lays it out for us very clearly, because here's the thing. If you're saved, you are the elect of God. You are the chosen of God. And you're chosen of God because, and he can say that you are his chosen, because of the foreknowledge of God, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Notice how the Trinity, all three of those are there together in that verse. Now, here's the thing. God's foreknowledge does not eliminate the work of the Holy Spirit in the calling and the work of salvation. God's foreknowledge does not invalidate the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Somebody put it this way, in a very limited way, we can understand how God's foreknowledge works. Now, as a kid, I used, to, I used to lay down in my bed sometimes at night and I would think, okay, how does God know everything for eternity? And I'd sit there, my mind would just be like, okay, so he knew 1,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago and 3,000 years ago. Anyway, I was maybe a bit obsessive compulsive as a child, I don't know. And I would think about these things. I try to understand, you know, God and his omnipotence and omniscience and all of this. And I try to understand what it means. Okay, here's how we can, in a limited way, by the way, a lot of things about God are a mystery and that's okay. <laughs> I think if you live your life convinced that you figured God out, that's a dangerous place to be. It's okay for there to be a little bit of mystery, you know? That's okay. But God's foreknowledge works in this way, and this is how we can kind of understand it, is that we have foreknowledge ourselves of certain things, don't we? You say, what are you talking about? For instance, 
Did you know that they know exactly the time the sun will rise tomorrow morning? Did you know that? You ever see that on the new weather? Sunrise, 6.37 and 25 seconds. Have you ever noticed that? And you're like, whoa. And I've, I've done that before. I've had my watch and I've looked at it. And sure enough, boop, there it is. You know, as soon as you, as soon, I mean, I mean, right on time. They nailed it, right? We know the minute when the high and the low tides will be on any given date. We know the date of the next full moon. We know the date of the next eclipse of the sun. We know the date when Halley's Comet will again be visible in the night sky in 2061. How many of you remember the last Halley's Comet? It was a while ago. 1986, I think is when it was. Now, we can foreknow, we can foreknow these things as mathematical certainties, but that does not mean that we made them happen, does it? Right? We didn't make, I was like, oh, the sun's going to come up at 637, I'm going to make that happen. No. We can know it, we have a foreknowledge of it, but we didn't make it happen. Now, of course, there could be some, you're saying, well, pastor, there could be a cosmic catastrophe that will change all the calculations. Yes, I know that. Well, we don't know that, but God knows that. Up until this point, the earth has been pretty, pretty much on time. We recognize that. But here's the thing. God knows that, and God's omniscience enables him to know all of these facts. God's omniscience allows him to know uh, both history and the future of the universe. God knows what will be, and he also knows what could be. He knows both of those things. And his omniscience enables him to know all the details of redemption, just like God knows all the details of creation. And so it's this kind of knowledge that God has that Peter calls foreknowledge. It enables God then to elect and to know the chosen people, and he elects them to become a part of his eternal purposes. Did you know that God knows how many people will accept him? God knows who they are, God knows where they live, and God knows the various circumstances of their lives and the circumstances that lead them to choosing him. And guess what he does? He then fits them with that foreknowledge into his purposes in time and eternity. God's foreknowledge does not remove the fact that the Holy Spirit is still doing a work of enlightening the individual and trying to point them to Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1 and verse number 9, it says there was a man sent from God uh, whose name was John. That's verse 6. Uh, the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Now, this is talking about John. He was not that light. Of course, we know who the light is. But was sent to bear witness of that light. Verse number 9, that was the true light, capital L, that's Jesus, who, uh, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. Every person has an opportunity to see the light of God. That should be encouraging to us, church, that God's desire is that everyone would come to know him. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God makes sure that a person has an opportunity to turn to God. God gives everyone an opportunity to know him, and some respond and some don't respond. And guess what? God knows who will respond, and God knows who will not respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. And as each person accepts or rejects God's offer, God is able to have that knowledge, that foreknowledge, because God is not bound by time and space as we are. We always think in this linear thought process, right? Uh, but yet God doesn't operate on that. He sees the time, past, present, future. He knows it all. And here's the thing. God never violates the human volition. God persuades. He does not overpower. God did not bless his creation with the gift of free will. 
God did not teach us about the power of choice and of accountability to those choices, personal accountability for our behavior. God did not teach us those things and then act as if they do not exist. God has given those two things. And so God's election or this understanding of God's chosen people of who are saved uh, takes into full account the response of each individual when confronted by the Holy Spirit with the offer of salvation. Now, in the immediate context of Peter's words here in this passage, the emphasis on the, is on the fact here that these particular believers were elect strangers. Did you notice that? These were people that were scattered throughout this region, meaning this, God knew who they were God knows what they're all about. God knew that they were uh, born again in an area that was uh, uh, growing and had terrible hostility towards them, and yet God still had a purpose for them, and, and, and he's keeping with the fact that they were there. So here's the great thing that we see, and here's why I even talk about this today. No matter what our earthly situation, God has a purpose and a plan for us to accomplish. This is what it means. God sees you in your challenges. Woo! <laughs> He does. God sees you in the difficulty. He knows what you are facing. He knows what you're facing, and he's calling you to look beyond that. And you can look beyond that because you are his chosen child. 2 Corinthians 4, God gave me this in my devotions this week in just my regular Bible reading, and it encouraged me so much. In our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's temporary. What does that light of fiction do? It worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are, say that word with me, eternal. Eternal. This is the uniqueness of the recipients that Peter is writing to here. He says they are unique people because they're scattered. They're believers that are scattered all over. But what is so special about them is that they are the chosen ones of God. And God knows where they are. And he knows their circumstances. And God knows that about you today. You are unique. Today you are, you are a unique recipient of God's word today. And he's speaking to you. And he knows you. And you are his and because you are his, there is a plan for you. There is some way that God is going to use your life to make a difference for his glory. And yes, it may mean that you will glorify God in your suffering. And we're going to talk a lot about that through 1 Peter, about giving glory to God in the suffering, giving glory to God in the, in the difficulty of living in this fallen, broken world. But I want you to know that you are chosen of God, and he knows who you are, and there is a purpose and a plan for you. We are strangers living in a strange place that is not our final home. It is a unique book in its recipients, but lastly, it is unique in its message. It's unique in its message. The second part of the last part there of verse number two, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. The purpose of Paul's letter is that grace and peace will be multiplied to them. And it's a theme that we see throughout the book of First Peter. The way that he multiplies grace and the way that he multiplies peace to them, which that peace is a, an assurance. This is, I love the definition of the word peace. It is an assurance that God is in control is what it is. It's an assurance. You know, we say, man, I want peace. I want world peace. Well, if everybody just recognized God was in control, it'd change a lot of things, wouldn't it? And so he says, I want grace, that's undeserved favor, and I want peace, this confidence in God. I want it to be given to you. And the way that he does that is by teaching us how to act as Christians. 
He teaches us how to have grace in relationships, how we can have peace with God uh, through suffering, how we can learn to live in submission to Christ and uh, earthly rulers and one another. And these are lessons that Peter learned personally through his time with Jesus Christ. Because truthfully, only someone like Peter who lost hope at the sight of Jesus on the cross could say, as he does in verse number three, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. Only a man like Peter who had fallen and been restored could say, in, as he does in chapter 5, that God gives grace to the humble. Only a person like Peter who yielded to Satan's temptation could challenge us in chapter 5 and verse 9 to resist Satan, to remain steadfast in the faith. You get what I'm saying here? This is all from personal experience that he had walking with Christ, that he can encourage us and challenge us to have grace and peace. And all throughout our study together, we are going to be challenged as a church to stand fast in trials to live for God in a hostile world, and to appreciate and to be thankful for our salvation in Jesus Christ. First Peter is a very unique book. It has a unique author, has a unique timing, has unique recipients, and it has a unique message for us. And that's really the bulk of what our study is gonna be is that message that is for us. We hope that today's message was a help to your relationship with God. To stay connected with us, you can like us on Facebook or give us a follow on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will uniquely bless and grow you as you pursue His will for your life.